Hey guys, thank you so much for joining us for the NCC podcast. God is doing so many great things in our community, and I trust that he's doing great things in your life as well. And I trust that God is going to speak to you through this message. Well, thank you for being here tonight. You know, when I knew I was going to have this topic on uh, how to study the Bible, I feel like an expectant father, and now I'm already the baby's coming, and the, they've called me to come and, and look at what we got. So I'm really happy to be here with you tonight. And I can't think of a more important subject than the subject of how to study the Bible. It's been said when you focus, or what you focus on, becomes the dominant influence in your life. And if we focus on the Word of God, imagine the possibilities that God has for those who give themselves into the study of his word and then applying that word in the life that he's given us. So tonight, <clears throat> there's really, there's going to be two Wednesdays in a row because this subject is so big that we're going to break it down into two nights. And so on the screen here, Eddie, if you'll bring that up, here's our agenda. We're, tonight, we're going to talk about biblical literacy, why we have confidence in the Bible, and then an overview of the Bible. If we're going to study the Bible, we better understand a little bit about the Bible. And so we're going to go from Genesis to Revelations and touch on everything that the Bible has to show us. The next week, when we come back, we're going to look at Bible study methods. We're going to take a look at if you're just beginning to study the Word and you're, you're new to it and you want to know, how do, where do I start? How do I start? We're going to show you six simple steps to go through that. And if you've got gray hair like me and you've been around a while and you want to have an advanced study and go deeper, we're going to show you how to do that. It's exciting about that. And then at the end, we're going to go over all the different tools that we have to help us. And I'm going to have a display over here so you can not only hear about them, you can see some of them for yourself. Okay, so now listen to me now at this point. I'm not going to ask anybody to raise your hand. Okay, so what I'm about to say, don't raise your hand. <laughs> so how many here read the Bible every day and study the Scriptures? When I thought of that question, it reminded me of the story of a pastor who came before his congregation and he announced to them that next Sunday, he's going to have a topic on the sin of lying. And he asked everybody to study from the book of Mark chapter 17. So when that Sunday came around and he presented himself to the congregation, <clears throat> he asked them, okay, how many studied Mark 17? And almost everybody Almost nearly every hand was raised. With that, the pastor smiled, and he said, Folks, Mark only has 16 chapters. <laughs> and now I will present my subject online. Okay? It's a sad fact, but it is true. The majority of Christians do not read their Bible daily. A study was done by Statista, a 2021 survey for Bible readership in America. And it was taken between 2018 and 2021. And this is what they found. 11% of Americans read their Bible daily. And 30% never read the Bible. 30% of Americans never open up a Bible. And in between those two is 5%, four or more times per week, 9% once a week, 8% once a month, another 8% three or four times per year, 8% once or twice per year, and 13% less than once per year. So tonight, our study is very important. 
And we're going to become, if we're not careful, a nation of biblical illiteracy. There was a study done by a, a, a high school teacher for juniors and seniors, and he was going to teach a course on the Bible as literature. And what he wanted to do was just quiz the kids, juniors and seniors, on their Bible knowledge. And I'm going to share with you some of their responses. Sodom and Gomorrah were lovers. <laughs> Jezebel was Ahab's donkey. Some thought that the four horsemen appeared on the actual Acropolis in Greece. The New Testament Gospels were written by Matthew, Mark, Luther, and John. Eve was created from an apple, and Jesus was baptized by Moses. But the answer that really took the cake, this student was in the top 5% of his class academically. The question that he answered was, what was Golgotha? His answer, Golgotha was the name of the giant who slew the apostle David. <clears throat> if it wasn't so pathetic, it'd be hilarious. But isn't it amazing how pitifully illiterate John Q. Public is of the book of books? We live in a land where we have plenty of churches and chapels, tab temples and tabernacles, but there's only an insignificant handful of people who really look and know and understand God's word. We have scriptures in hardback, paperback, cloth, and leatherback. Paraphrased versions, and we have large Bibles, and we've got Bibles on microchips. But year by year, as, even, as each generation passes on to another, we're becoming biblically illiterate. And the sad thing is, when we think about our country and you looked at the knowledge that we have gained in science and technology, it has exploded. And biblical knowledge pales compared to that. You see, what's happening is we're moving somewhat like an era of the Dark Ages. And what happened in the Dark Ages was that the Bible was literally chained to the pulpits. And it was written in Latin a language known only to the elite and the priesthood. So the common man was denied the word of God, was denied the promises and the hope that's found in the word of God. But there's a big difference between what's happened then and what's happening now. For them, it was forced on them. For us, it's voluntary. And therein lies the saddest point of all. The church, Christ church, has fallen in to a terrible rut right now. And studies show that Christians know less of the Bible than at any other time in recent history. This is happening even among our Christian colleges. One professor made this quote. I'm going to read his quote. Our assumption now is that incoming freshmen know nothing about the Bible and that we must start at the most basic level. Did you really catch that? Our Christian colleges are assuming that our incoming Christian kids don't even understand the very basics of the word of God. The most obvious answer to that dilemma when we try to figure out why is this happening is that Christians are not spending as much time as is needed in reading and studying God's word. That's why it's so important for us 
in this generation, in our church, as parents and grandparents, to instill in our children the knowledge of God's word, to take that time and read that word and be able to explain that word and understand it. So how can you explain it if you don't understand it? And that's why what we're here tonight to do is help us all be better at that. See, God already has told us how important this subject is. Listen to what he said in Psalm 1, verses 2 and 3. But those who delight in the law of the Lord and who meditate on his law day and night, that person is like a tree planted by the streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Whatever they do prospers. And then again in Psalm 119, I have hidden your, heart, your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now there's a deeper reason to this problem. What we did is just peel the, the onion, the first layer, when we say we're not reading and, and going deep into the word. Yeah, and, and one of the reasons for that is the distractions that we have. Pastor last Sunday talked about the 24-hour news cycles. We could pull up our, our cell phones and look at that. We could take that remote and look at that. And so many times we come home from work and we're tired from our day. And so we settle into that chair and lean back. And before you know it, it's time for bed. How much more would you grow if you gave God some time in his word? How much more? You see, the real root cause behind what's happening that I'm talking about is our heart. Is our heart issue. If we love the Lord with all of our heart, then we want to be like Jesus. We want Jesus to come in. We want his desires, his teachings, his principles to dominate our thinking, our speaking, our actions. That's what's important here tonight. And because the Bible is where God has made himself known, our knowledge of the scripture is a key way to grow in our knowledge of him. So tonight, let's begin our journey. I want to ask you this question. What is your final authority in life? I'm talking about when reality hits you and you're up against the chaotic mess that sometimes comes into our lives, messes that we didn't plan for, problems that we didn't want to happen in our life, but they're there anyways. What's your final authority? When the storms come in and the fog comes in and you're, you don't know where you're at, where's that lighthouse that tells you where the shore is? When you're in this chaotic jungle of emotions and ethical compromises that are happening all around us in our world, where's your compass that points north? The answer is all in the word of God. Everything you need to deal with any situation is already there written down for us. So why does this book qualify as a final authority? Well, let's go over five different reasons or ways we know we can have confidence in the Bible. First, number one, God's word is true. We know in the book of John 17 and 17, when Jesus was speaking to the Father, he said this, your word is truth. Truth we can rely on. Truth that isn't going to deviate with the circumstances of life. It's never going to backfire. It's never going to mislead us. That's why the Bible provides us with a constant and a needed support in our life. The second thing, God's book is God's voice. Scripture tells us that God's message is, in fact, God's word to us. He's speaking to us. The Apostle Paul really helped us in this situation. First Thessalonians 2 and 13. Listen to what he says. 
For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in those who believe. Think about it this way. God's book, as it were, is God's voice. If Jesus was on earth today and walking among us, what he would say, what he would teach, his emotions, his priorities, his desires, his warnings, his very heart, all of that would line up exactly with the word of God because it's already written down for us to hear from the voice of God, to guide us. Number three, God's word will endure. Do you realize there's only two things on earth that are eternal? One is people. The other is the word of God. Everything else is going to go to a big bonfire one day. Okay? All that stuff we work so hard to accumulate, we're so proud to polish, we frame it. All of those things that we puff up about, they're all going to be burned away. God's word tells us that his word will endure. Isaiah said this, grass will grow and then it will wither. Flowers will bloom and then they'll die. But God's written message, the truth, will abide forever. Number four, God's word is inspired. So you might be asking the question, how can anyone get so excited about something that was written by men? Well, we don't necessarily have a problem with the part that God gave truth. But sometimes some of us get hung up and those that question God, they wonder, you know, wasn't that truth corrupted as it was relayed to the earth through the hands of sinful men? That's an important question. We're going to address that. You see, this is a perfect moment in tonight for you to become acquainted with three doctrinal terms, revelation, inspiration, and illumination. When you hear revelation, what that is talking about, that occurred when God gave truth. Inspiration occurred when the writers of scriptures received and wrote and recorded his truth. And illumination occurs when we hear that truth and apply that truth. Okay? That's what that is for us tonight. So the critical issue, your confidence in the Bible, is directly related to your confidence in its inspiration. So how then... Can we be sure that God's word is free from error, absolutely true, and therefore deserving of our complete trust? Paul, again, has a helpful answer for us. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, he said this, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate Equipped for every good work. When God revealed his truth for human writers to record, he breathed out his word. Much like when you're dictating something, you breathe out a message. So then you might ask, well, did the writers just take dictation and just write everything that way? Again, the answer is no to that. You see, when God breathed out, and you look in the, the word, in the Greek word for that, you'll see it is called moved by. Moved by. The Greek word 
actually comes from a nautical term, pharaoh, pronounced like the pharaohs of Egypt. And what that term refers to is when a ship was at, in the ocean and it was, became helpless, helpless, maybe it's lost its rudder or its sails, it can't move, but it is being moved by a force and a power greater than itself. And this is what happened when God breathed out his messages. Now, we still know that the Bible was written by about 40 different individuals. And so you see their personality come into that. Peter doesn't sound like John. John doesn't sound like David. Somehow each writer's personality was preserved without corrupting the text with human weakness and error. And that rules out the idea of dictation. So the, the fifth and, and last point, God's word will hold you up. How many times, if we were taking testimonies tonight, could you atone to the fact that when you were down, when there was no hope, you went to God, you relied on his word, you called upon him because his word tells you to call upon me, seek me, and he comes through. He comes through every time. He gets you through the, the long haul, the, the lonely night in the hospital, wondering how it's going to come out. God's word gives you a deep sense of purpose and meaning in your life. You're not just here by the whim of life. God gives you purpose and meaning and talent and skills to be used for his glory and to increase his kingdom. It'll give you strength and no other instruction has more power to give meaning to your life than the word of God. So let's move on now and into the part of an appreciation for the Bible itself. <clears throat> the first thing we need to know is the Bible includes a total of 66 individual books. Some of these books are personal letters. Some are songs. And others are like journals or diaries. There's law codes and histories. The words of the Bible were breathed out by God and recorded by approximately 40 human beings over 1,500-year period. As we talked about before, and I, I love the importance of different translations. And you'll, you'll see as we get into it next week how important translations are. Because sometimes you may have a translation that is written back in like 1611, like the King James Version. You may have grown up with that like me, but then other translations are easier for you to understand. So it's important to have one that you really understand. This is the same scripture we just read, a different translation, the New Living Testament. As Paul explains to his protege, Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God, is useful to teach what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong, and it teaches us to do what is right. Did you notice the difference in those translations? Now, the Bible's divided into two major sections. The Old Testament, which anticipates the coming of the Messiah, and then the New Testament, which presents Jesus as the Messiah and explains his purpose and his ministry. The Old Testament begins with the books of ancient history, from Genesis to Esther. And following that section, the books of poetry appear together, from Job to Song of Solomon. And finally, in the last part of the Old Testament, we come to the books of prophecy, from Isaiah to Malachi. These three sections, representing the three types of literature, comprise 39 books in the Old Testament. Now, the New Testament is set up in a similar way, 
The Gospels include the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they tell the good news of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. Acts comes along, it's a book of history, one single book, but it covers the establishment of the church. Then comes all the letters, which usually are divided into the letters of Paul, which go from Romans to Philemon, and then other writers, who, general letters from Hebrews to Jude. And then finally, there is Revelation, which is the book of prophecy. So with this knowledge tonight, God never intended his Bible to be a cornerstone on your end table. He intended for you to pick that up when you're hungry, like a good meal. When your soul needs encouragement and refreshing and strength, it's all there. He wants you to pick it up and become involved in it and to take it in and grow. And when we do that, interestingly, the more we learn and the more we grow from reading the scriptures, you know what we're going to be able to do? We're going to be able to share that with other people who don't know. People that are hungry and hurting, and they're looking for an answer. And you will have that answer because you've hidden the word of God in your very heart tonight. So this next slide, it shows all the 39 books of the Old Testament. It breaks it down into major categories of the Old Testament. So you see there are 17 books of history. Five deal with legal and 12 historical books. Then there are five books of poetry. And then there are 17 books of prophecy. Five of those deal with major prophets, and the other 12 deal with minor prophets. The first section of the Old Testament often is the historical section of the Bible, and it is called that because it's a narrative, because God is communicating his word to his people. Now, since the first five books of the Bible contain the Ten Commandments and the law for Israel to follow, they're more frequently referred to as the law. Some call that the Pentateuch, which is the five, first five books of the Hebrew Bible. The story begins, as we know, in Genesis 1 with God creating all things, and the crown jewel of his creation, Adam and Eve, who bore their creator's very own image. Now, they lived in perfect communion with God, but something happened. They were given the opportunity to obey the creator, and they did not. Sound familiar to anybody? <laughs> But barely in the story, in Genesis 3, they rebelled against God and disobeyed his command. And sin fractured their relationship with the holy God. But from this point on in Scripture, we witness again and again the horrific results of sin. At that same time, we observe the grace and forgiveness that God offers, who carefully unfolds his plan to redeem creation. Then in Genesis 12, God chose Abram, who later became Abraham, and Sarai, who became Sarah, to be the parents of a special nation. Eventually, that nation would become Israel. Things that uh, through Abraham, the promise and his offspring, the promise was for all the families on the earth to be blessed. And tonight, you and I are part of that blessing that God promised Abraham so many years ago. The rest of the gen Genesis tells a fascinating story about Abraham and the next three generations. And over time, they grew into a large family and wound up in Egypt because of a famine that was occurring. With the flip of a page, the book of Exodus continues the story for 400 years later. Then with Abraham's family having been blessed by God and having grown into a nation made up of 12 tribes, they became a threat to the Egyptians. And so they enslaved them. 
And in that cruelty and in that hard time, they cried out to God for help. And so God did hear their prayers. And God raised up Moses to deliver his people from Egypt and to bring them to a very special place he called the promised land. The narrative continues, and on the way to the promised land, God gave the Israelites his law to follow and to live by. These codes explain how God's people are to enjoy a loving relationship with him and with other people. When the 12 tribes finally arrived at the doorstep of the promised land, however, they ultimately didn't trust God to deliver them. You see, in that promised land, there lived a people called the Canaanites, and the Israelites were very afraid of them. They were a formidable enemy. And what happened then? Fear eclipsed faith. Think in your own life for a moment tonight. How many times has the enemy spoken fear to you when God had a promise just on the other side of that opportunity and they pulled back? It cost them dearly. It cost them very dearly. Consequently, that unbelieving generation was left to die off and wander for 40 years in the wilderness. Much of that wandering is covered in the last part of Exodus and through the book of Numbers. Now, in the book of Deuteronomy, it's actually a message to the grown children of that unbelieving generation. So God had Moses again repeat his rules and his laws. This is the word of God in Deuteronomy 6, 1, 9. True then and true today. Here's what it says. <clears throat> These are the commands, the decrees, and regulations that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. You must obey them in the land you are about to enter and occupy. And you and your children and grandchildren must fear the Lord your God as long as you live. If you obey all his decrees and commands, you will enjoy a long life. This is Moses speaking. Listen closely, Israel, and be careful to obey. Then all will go well with you, and you will have many children in the land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Listen, O Israel. The Lord is our God the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commandments that I am giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road and when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Tie them on your hands. Wear them around your forehead as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You notice from those words that Moses was charged with teaching the Israelites to obey the word of God. Also note that learning God's word results in obedience. God told people that obedience would allow them to enjoy a long life. These few sentences of Deuteronomy 6 are saying in summary, that obedience to God's word results in God's blessings. And who here tonight wouldn't want more of God's blessings in your life, especially in these times that we live? See, obeying God isn't automatic. It isn't accomplished by simply knowing his instructions. We learn here that wholeheartedly loving our great God includes teaching and explaining his word to others. So what is the point that God is communicating here? Simply this, that parents have a responsibility to teach and remind their children of God's truth. And this ancient command is to be obeyed today as much as when it was first given. 
no difference. Generation after generation is to learn, obey, and teach the truths of our Lord. Timeless passages like this apply to all generations, including ours. And this is a good time to point out in our study that God's word is for everyone. While there's a specific role for pastors and teachers, God doesn't limit the explanation of his word to certain specialists. Rather, God's word is to be learned, applied, obeyed, and passed on and on and on. All of us have a responsibility to know this word, to have it deep in our heart, understand it, so we can explain it to someone who needs it, just like you were before you got saved. Amen? Searching the scriptures isn't restricted to any specialized group. Access is available to anyone. Now let's just get back to the overview. The grand narrative progresses as God leads this new generation to conquer the promised land. Now it's under Joshua's leadership. But sadly, once the 12 tribes settled in the land, they struggled faithfully to obey God. That led to a period when Israel was ruled by judges that God appointed. God would deliver his people from their enemies only to have the people repeatedly fall into sin. It was a wicked, tragic cycle. I wonder what God thinks about our generation. When you reflect on what our founding fathers the faith that they had in God, the miracles that God provided so we would be free and independent. And how far we have gone from the truth of God. We have to be that generation that's different. We have to be that Christian to bring that light back into a dark and dying world. Eventually, out of that rebellious and rebellion against the Lord, the people asked God for a human king just like the other pagan nations. We want to be just like them. God gave them their wishes, and they would live to regret it. Let's look at the books of poetry. The next part of the Bible story takes us into the beginning of the kingdom of Israel. Now, first under King Saul, then we go to King David, and finally with King Solomon. This collection of books is sometimes called the wisdom literature, primarily written by Solomon because it is written to impart God's wisdom to those who believe and obey God's word. The book of Proverbs is one of the best books of the poetry in the Old Testament, written and collected mostly by Solomon. And listen to the wisdom here if you want to, and this will explain and extol wise behavior in the eyes of the Lord. So if you want to be wise in the eyes of the Lord, Follow me as I take you through Proverbs 2, 1 through 9. My children, listen to what I say and treasure my commands. Tune your ears to wisdom and concentrate on understanding. Cry out for insight and ask for understanding. Search for them as you would for silver. Seek them like hidden treasures. Then you will understand what is meant to fear the Lord and you will gain the knowledge of God. For the Lord grants wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He grants treasures of common sense to the honest. He's a shield to those who walk with integrity. He guards the path of the just and protects those who are faithful to him. 
Then you will understand what, it, what is right and just and fair, and you will find the right way to go. So many today don't know the right way to go. In this passage, God is reminding us to hear and to study and to obey his instructions. And notice, the diligence involved in the study of God's word as we search for it should be like we're hunting for treasure. And sometimes you have to dig. Sometimes you have to get your hands dirty. Sometimes you have to commit time and energy. But it's well worth it when you find the prize. Proverbs 2 explains what is gained from the study of the scripture. Wisdom that finds the right course of action in one's life. The Bible is God's inerrant word gives us an insight we need. And this is why people who have learned to study the scriptures are some of the most helpful, happy, joyous people on earth. Have you ever had a situation where someone maybe has come up to you and the whole place is at work is just falling the pot. Everybody just found out they're about to have a downsize in the plant. Everybody's wondering what's going to happen. And then there's one guy that's still kind of above it. Above the fray? Some of you know my testimony. I'm not going to take much time on this, but I, I came out of a situation where I worked in an assembly plant and I was in great sin. And I worked in a, in a very tough environment in an assembly plant in Lordstown, Ohio. But there was one man that God sent into that area with all the swearing and cursing and meanness that went on. He lived above the fray because he had the word of God in his heart. That's what God wants to do in our lives. Let us be that light, and that light is Christ in us. And it will shine in the darkest places. Even when everything else is going bad, you can rise above it. You're still in it, but you're above it because your hope isn't in the circumstances. Your hope is in the heaven. That wasn't in my study, Pastor. <laughs> Let's look at the book of prophecy. God's persistent call to study his word isn't always given in a positive command. Mm-hmm. Sometimes he confronts his people with the sin of ignoring him and his commands. This is often seen in these books, the books of the prophets, which are contained in the third and final section of the Old Testament. Those prophets were strong-hearted and strong-minded men. The books from Isaiah to Daniel make up the five major prophets in the Old Testament. Now, they're called major prophets simply because their writings are longer than the others. Then there are 12 minor prophets who wrote shorter books, and these are from Hosea to Malachi. Now, a prophet's job was to speak for God. He communicated God's clear, firm, and often confrontational message to direct the reigning king and the people in the ways of the Lord. In one sense, that was the most important job in Israel, even above the king. However, the prophets weren't always received very well. Often they were ignored, they were mocked, they were ridiculed, and even put to death by kings and people. So after the first three kings of Israel, Saul, David, and Solomon, the kingdom split, and guess what they split over? Taxes. Taxes. The northern ten tribes united and took the name of Israel. The southern two tribes joined forces under the name of Judah. And this period of the divided kingdom lasted until the end of the Old Testament. Each kingdom had its own kings. God raised up prophets during this time to speak to the kings and the people. And here are the three simple points to remember about the role of a prophet. Number one, as a mouthpiece for God, 
Prophets were primarily concerned with restoring a relationship between God and his people. Second, prophets constantly called for repentance and warned the people of impending judgment. That didn't make them very popular. And third, prophets offered a message of hope as they foretold of the future when God would restore his people. Despite the warnings of the prophets, listen, this, this really shocked me when I studied this out. No less than 20 successive kings ignored the word of God. And judgment came for the northern 10 tribes first. In 722 BC, the powerful Assyrian army attacked and captured the kingdom of Israel. And they integrated them into their own nation with their own wicked ways. The southern kingdom didn't fare much better. That nation had occasional kings that were righteous, but for the most part, it too was marked by disobedience. Approximately 150 years after the northern kingdom fell to Assyria, the southern kingdom was attacked by Babylon and taken to exile in the year 586 BC. And like the Assyrians, the Babylonians were ruthless, cutthroat people. They destroyed everything in their way, including the capital city of Jerusalem, their walls, and the temple that God, that Solomon had built to God. Now, the prophet Jeremiah lived in these tumultuous times. And this is what he had to say as God's message to him for his people. God's words sometimes are sharp for those that continue to ignore him. Jeremiah 4.22, my people are foolish and do not know me, says the Lord. Sound like today? They are stupid children who have no understanding. They are clever enough in doing wrong, but they have no idea how to do right. How is that for telling it like it is? You can't hide from God. The judgment against that disobedience serves as an important reminder for all people, including us today, that God has made himself known in his book, the Bible. And we're foolish if we don't take the time to dig into the truth for ourselves. The disobedience of the people of Judah ultimately led to their exile in Babylon. However, God wasn't silent. He continued to raise up various prophets such as Daniel and Ezekiel to call the people to repent for their sins. Now those prophets also predicted the coming Messiah who would ultimately save Israel from their sins. Now after 70 grueling, lonely years of captivity, the Persian Empire under King Cyrus conquered the Babylonian Empire and let the captives return to their homelands. Now listen very clearly to this next point because this totally surprised me. But many captives had become comfortable in Babylon and Persia, so less than half of the people returned to the promised land. Less than half. Here's the promise of God. Here's the future. Here's your hope. Here's your eternal place. And you'd rather stay in Babylon? You'd rather stay in Persia? Half stayed where they were. I was so sad to lean there. The Old Testament closes with Israel as a mere shadow of its former self. The remnants were struggling to reestablish themselves at the rebuilding of the protective walls of Jerusalem. 
and a a very modest version of Solomon's temple. They longed for their coming Messiah to restore the land. And the story of the rebuilding of Jerusalem is told in the historical books of the Old Testament, Ezra and Nehemiah, as well as through the other prophets. So with that, that brings us really to the end of our summary and overview of the Old Testament. Let's quickly take a look at the New Testament. What we've learned is that the study of God's word is neither optional nor occasional. It's a source of wisdom and knowledge and understanding for our daily lives. It was true for them then, and it is true for us today. Now, some 400 years after Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament, we come to the New Testament, which offers the long-awaited hope promised by the prophets of God. The first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're often referred to as the Gospels. Gospel is a term that simply means good news. The good news presented in these four books is that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And each of the four books tells the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Each writer shows his particular audience how God has offered salvation to all of us through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus' ministry was marked by a unique style of teaching. He used something called parables. We need to become familiar with those. Parables are short stories conveying a specific point. And one of the most famous ones is the very first sermon he spoke on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 24. You've heard this many times. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise. Like a person who builds a house on a solid rock. The rains come in torrents. The floodwaters rise And the winds, they beat against the house, and it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish. Like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and the floods come and the winds bear against the house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. That imagery is pretty powerful, isn't it? Where are you building your house? on the solid rock of Christ, on the solid rock of his word. Anyone who's doing less than that is just waiting for the next great storm to come. And their house, their future, their life will fall with a mighty crash. Jesus' message is powerful and timeless. Through some words and principles of the Bible, you know, it's intimidating sometimes when we get into the word of God. Sometimes we can... We can Don't understand everything right away, but don't let that ever stop you from digging, from pushing through, from staying into the word. The passages we've looked at often, they offer a consistent message that studying the Bible is not only possible, it's doable. You can do these things. Let's look at the book of history. After the first four books of the New Testament, the Gospels, we come to a single book of history known as Acts, or as it is sometimes called, the Acts of the Apostles. This exciting narrative picks up the story of Jesus where the Gospels end. It begins with Christ's ascension into heaven, followed by the coming and empowering of the Holy Spirit. Acts then tells the story of the start of the church as Jesus' followers share that good news of his death and resurrection with others. And then we see the planning of churches all over the known world. The letters of Paul, there are 13. 
The remainder of the New Testament is made up of letters written by several of Jesus' followers who were inspired by the Holy Spirit to record reliable truths for us to live by. That's why that's so important. They explain the meaning of the Savior's life, his death, and his resurrection. The first set of letters is written by the Apostle Paul, starting with Romans like we just went through and all the way through to Philemon. Included in this group are two letters that Paul wrote to his younger friend and understudy in ministry, Timothy. The second letter was written at the end of Paul's life. Stop and think about that for a minute. When a person is coming to the end of their life, what they have to say is very important. And so he says this to Timothy, and he says this for you and I today. In 2 Timothy 2.15, work hard so you can present yourself to God and receive his approval. Be a good worker, one who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly explains the word of truth. You see, Paul's challenge to Timothy to work hard really is saying, study. Study, Timothy, and know the power of God's word. Know it so well that when you're called upon, you can answer the questions, and people will know the truth where you're declaring it. That's why Deuteronomy 6 was so powerful then, and that's why it's powerful today for you and I. The Bible does not yield truth to lazy minds. Let's look at the general letters. There's eight of those. After Paul's letters, the New Testament includes various letters written by other followers of Christ, and those are the books from Hebrews through Jude. Now, similar to Paul's letters, they call followers of Christ to lives of faithfulness, discipline, purity, and service to others. Kind of like creating Christ-centered, culture-changing community. These letters help us understand the purpose and the structure of the church and the ministries that it carries out, regardless of the time or the era in which the church exists. True then, true now. Needed then, much needed now. Then there are the books of prophecy, one book. The final book of the New Testament is Revelation, which offers a prophetic look at the end of human history. It tells of the glorious return of our Savior, the judgment of sin, and how Christ will make all things new. These four sections of the New Testament, the Gospels, the history, the letters, the prophecy, they complete our overview as we go through all 66 books of the Bible tonight. Hopefully you have begun to realize that searching the Scriptures not only is commanded by God, but it can be done if you just will Put forth the effort and the determination you can become a student of God's word. Now, long before books as we know them today were invented, the Bible was a collection of scrolls all rolled up in parchment. This overhead right here presents the categories, the books of the Bible, how they can be divided into. This is the way our Bibles are arranged today except that the individual scrolls are now found in one large book. God's word promises us knowledge, understanding, and wisdom for living our lives. But as Solomon told his son and as Paul told Timothy, it's going to take some hard work. So are you ready to dig in? 
next week because we're going to go, we're going to be excitedly going through ways to study God's word. And I am fired up about that. Thank you for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and share our podcast. For more content from NCC and how to get connected, visit ncc.team.